0: Today on the Free Thinking podcast, we have Roger Black, creative director for Ballymore Property Group, a visionary leader across the board strategy, design, communications, experience, all my favourite things. Now, with great care, he talks about the conception and delivery of some iconic mixed-use London projects, City Island, Good Luck Hope, Embassy Gardens, and critically, how to flip the model, how to bake in social infrastructure from the very beginning to ensure every step is optimized to inspire deep participation. Hello, Roger. Roger, thank you so much for joining me today, sir. Pleasure. Lovely, to lovely lovely to chat as always. Well, very good. Well, we always have such good chats and I think to record one of them feels like an important thing to do. So I have a question for you. So we, I remember you once talking to me about how a small house building business is a leading light in the London property business. And I was interested in what those key differentiators might be, you know, talking about your role at Ballymore. Can you give us a bit of an introduction, sir? That would be very helpful.
1: Well, I've been I've been the Creative Director of Ballymore since two thousand and ten. I, I joined literally at the tail end of the recession at a time that so many real estate companies were literally wiped out um by uh you know the burden of uh, of repaying debt facilities uh, and banks foreclosing on them. And uh I'd literally just joined after I I think a third of the business had just been let go a week or two before, some weeks before anyway. And uh, everyone had their heads down. And, um, you know, what I encountered was a small family run. What, In terms of managerially, in terms of numbers, a small business, family owned, um, that had an amazing asset base, but actually had had the stuffing knocked out of it, you know, through a couple of really hard years with the banks and so forth. So at the time, the company was in the throes or in the clutches of the National Asset Management Agency of the Irish government, which is essentially the debt you know, the the sort of organization that took over the failed banks of Ireland and was totally focused on um, on getting their money back in. So, you know, that was a business that I found, a business that essentially had born out of a house building business that had grown really into a construction business, the sold Flats, to be fair, and uh, owned by uh, an amazing entrepreneur, Sean Morion, um, who had a real sense of of opportunity of place, and to Sean's great credit, one of the attributes as to why the company is such a thriving business today, is he foresaw what would happen in the east end of London and invested heavily in that and acquired positions uh, on some what is now unbelievable real estate. But of course, back in the days, seemed like the badlands where why would you bother, sort of stuff. And um, so you had that is kind of one of the key things that. Uh, that will uh, that, that, that strengthen the business. You know, the other the other thing that really strengthened the business was the man himself. You know, this was a, a company run by an entrepreneur, uh, a, a man who has great empathy for the marketplace, to have a real keen sense of keen feel for what is going to work for consumers, what is going to work commercially, economically, just instinctively has a sense of, of the numbers uh, as well. Um, And I think that, you know, the great success of the business today is is built upon the boldness and bravery of an individual who not only had foresight, but frankly, had guts to kind of go for it. Um, And that's where the company sort of got its its footing. And I think in latter years, since I joined in 2010, was a, a real appreciation by him and latterly... Um, his kids, uh, John Moran, who's now the managing director of of the business, um, that, you know, the strength of the business going forward was going to be firmly based upon understanding the consumer marketplace and evolving from a construction-based culture to one where consumer product was central to the output of the overall enterprise. you know, to that end, I, I also have, we also have to congratulate um, many people around Sean in, 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 uh, um, uh, in terms of focusing uh, um, uh, you know, around building the, that, that, that sort of cultural footprint of, of the business. So there's always been, in, in my 12 years with the company, there's always been this interesting, and I put it kindly, friction. Between those pushing uh, an agenda around product and those only focused on numbers, or those only focused on on uh, on uh, on building, and you know that was recognized by one of Sean's key advisors back in the day, a gentleman by the name of Paul Keogh, who was uh, really keen on balancing the culture mix. And he, he, it was his idea, to be fair, to create a thing called the Design Cube, where we took an old. Mark and a glass pavilion building sat upon two barges that's floating or a barge that floats in the middle of, uh, of Millwall Dock, in a dock, uh, and turned that into sort of a creative slash design center. And it was kind of a clear signal, not just to externals, but more importantly to internal people that, yes, we have our construction culture and we have our sort of you know spreadsheet culture number smashing and all that sort of stuff. But we also, importantly, have a design culture as well. And and those two things started to become the sort of the balancing act between the two and the friction happened in between that space. And so that's where you sort of push, the designers are pushing the numbers guys and the numbers guys are always pushing the designers. But it's actually a business in balance, I think, in terms of sort of its twin objectives around product price um, and, and, and so forth. And I think that that, that move suggested by Paul and, you know, resoundingly supported by Sean Morine and John Morine, uh, was transformative for the business and gave rise out of that environment, gave rise to sort of seminal projects which have changed London and changed Ballymore. And I talk about London City Island or talk about Embassy Gardens. I talk about the Wardian um, mm-hmm. and that sort of change really has carried forward through to this, uh, through to this day.
0: Well, I've got a question on that change, because I think that when you speak about, and your body language there speaks about almost this, there is that friction which I get between the design side and number, and that, that sounds very positive, but also I note that there are things here about inverting the process, that where often the story is led by the numbers and led by a story of property, and then there might be elements that speak of the physicality of places, you're also looking at this most critically in terms of people and their narrative journey, and you're turning it upside down. Tell me more about that.
1: You know, I you know, I always had a sense because I'm very empathetic in that space. I'm I'm sort of just I just feel what's in people's emotional state, and and you know, you know, we we went on a journey and we learned, and um, I, I always had a sense that what really mattered to people was ultimately how do they feel, um, as opposed to what it is they specifically want. And over time, my sense of that has evolved and matured to one where I feel absolutely more certain about that um, and, and have seen plenty of examples of, 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 of how that works. So, you know, the reality of the consumer marketplace, we live in an immensely affluent society, we're richer today than we've ever been in the history of man, kind um, in terms of options in terms of material options at the very least um, and you know the way rational thought works today is that you know when we have con- choices as consumers in the marketplace well, almost inevitably all of us will rationalize too many choices down to a short list of options and that that that's typically rational thought and then ultimately we'll reach a point where we are arrived at A few options Two, three, four options Perhaps And ultimately those options are probably Nearly equivalent In one way or another And that the final decision ultimately Is an emotional one So it's a subtlety But it's a small subtlety that we Are keenly focused on From a sales perspective But what's happened over time Is that we started on a journey of of social events around the sales environment Um, and we opened those up to residents so we're selling real estate in places where you know we've got unsold property and you know projects that are in mid-train in terms of development and so forth and we started to recognize that people because we'd invite these and open these pop-up events up for you know celebrity chefs or book launches or so forth to just to create footfall around the, the, the project the people within these projects were also going to these events and it was just so clearly obvious that they were then bumping into that person they'd met in the lift last week and didn't know their name and didn't make eye contact and all of a sudden because they were in, a, you know, they were in an environment that was different and disruptive for them that they then would make eye contact and form initial sort of social linkages and around those linkages and around events became small clusters. And then when you have lots of small clusters. Some of those clusters connect, some of them don't. But the social clusters collectively, ultimately, that becomes a community. And we started to see that that work, which started with some pretty powerful ideas in the marketing arena, was having an immense amount of positive effect in terms of the lived experience within our estates. Um, And I'll get on to that in terms of what happened in in City Island. Um, But those social clusters um, forming into a community ultimately became our greatest asset working backwards to the sales environment. So we create legitimate communities, not just communities figuratively in terms of X numbers of people and so forth. But I mean, people genuinely making friends and that became a virtuous circle of advocacy. And so that when people would come and kick the tires of a project and they would kind of see or sense or feel or just just kind of know that there was something more than just real estate here, that there was a community that would reinforce the overall um, messaging, positively reinforcing the sales process over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so we see this a lot in the homes on our estates, which are rented as opposed to those that are just owned. Um, and that those more transient communities of people who might be in a place for a year or two or three are, are welcoming in their network of friends um, to their great lived experience and their friends then want to rent in those locations and so demand feeds demand, feeding everything else that goes on in the state more people, more demand, more hospitality, more social events, uh, more animation and commercially more sales, so everything everything is positive in that uh, in that in that uh, in that virtuous uh, circle. There's something else interesting in in in, in all of that around su- what happened with us and what I learned on our project at City Island was about how well thought out campaigns, in some respects, can be self selecting and. Terms of helping form community. So at City Island, we played very heavily on the notion of an island and the opportunity to move to an island, an island to sort of, you know, to be apart from London but nevertheless still in London. You know, that great opportunity to, uh, to, 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 uh, as I said, to be in a place. And what we found within the first. 50 people who moved into City Island, which was still just a building site. We created the canvas, we created the bar, you know, that was all there, but you needed a lot more than that. You needed something that was catalytic. And what happened was, on top of all those pop-up social events, is that we very quickly recognized that the people who chose to live there had chosen to buy into that notion of moving mm. to an island. Mm. And so when you got a cohort of people who've all decided that they want to move to the island or move to the village you drop that Teflon Teflon skin that we all have to wear to survive being on the tube in London to survive walking down a busy high street in the capital um, when we get back to the village when we get back to the island we can breathe again mm. and so when you had this cohort of people who were all sort of in that same emotional state they just started talking to the person on the bar stool next to them in the bar and again that was sort of really seismic in terms of uh, how that, that, that community flourished and literally from the first 50 people that has been a great social success. So now, you know, when I look at the success of our developments, which are all, you know, they're commercially successful in varying degrees, you know, there's ups and downs in the real estate market. It's not a, it's by no means a guaranteed success commercially. Mm-hmm. But I would say that all of the projects that we have delivered, I can proudly say, and I can I can articulate with great great clarity on every project why each one of them is an immense social success, and you know the measure of that is to look at our peer group of developers, and you know a great example of that is um, is uh, Embassy Gardens, where arguably um, um, Barkley Homes. Um, Adjacent to us um, Have a scheme designed by Richard Rogers Which arguably is Better located because it's actually On the river as opposed to step back From the river by Nine Elms Lane Architecturally you know It's exquisite Richard Rogers aesthetic But you go to that place and there's no community It's dead Uh, So geographically why doesn't it work It's got the right number of people It's in a fabulous location It's the same part of London but why is it dead? Whereas you cross over the road in Embassy Gardens, it's a rich, vibrant, integrated community. Just look on Instagram. Look at, you know, look at uh, look at Riverlight and look at Embassy Gardens, and you'll see one is vibrant and alive, and you know the most happy people. Certainly, the way the self promotion, the you know, self publicists, you know, present themselves. Yeah. Um But Riverlight, there's nothing, and it's just a kind of an amazing contrast. And so I think that that feeds. Ultimately, in real estate, I think that 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 ultimately feeds value. You know, the mm-hmm. thing around real estate value that I think so many of us in in the trade forget is that value is derived from people's want of being in a particular place. And the more people who want to be in a particular place, occupying a square foot of territory, the more who want to be on that square foot of territory, the higher the value. You know, why does no one? Why you know why is sort of remote woodland or farmland not worth very much money at all because actually no one really wants to be there the converse is true in a truly successful social environment and uh, you know and we see that you know look at covent garden look at the area around brick lane you know these sorts of areas where there's a kind of a, a an animation people want to be there and yeah. and and the real estate value follows uh, accordingly
0: roger tell me about I'm, I'm interested in that that point where you're making that you know, you spoke about the those social linkages and encouraging those and how those social events you spoke of then, you know, encourage the lived experience and how whether it's Embassy Gardens or City Islands, that's worked there. But I'm also keen to dig into you're also baking that into your first moves, aren't you? So that understanding of the social outcomes that you want to enable is right there at the very beginning, isn't it? It isn't. The activation strategy after you have a development—it's baked in there at the very beginning, isn't it? So with City Island, your relationship with that bridge was absolutely fundamental, wasn't it? Tell us a bit about that—the core bit.
1: I think City Island is 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 a great story to tell uh, because uh, as a development. It was literally a completely isolated piece of London that unless you'd worked in the Purina Foods factory that pre-existed on that site, you <clears> never, <throat> ever went there because there was no way to get there. Um, and it's certainly true, Adam, that once we built the bridge that connected, in a sense, the peninsula of land, which I call an island, into Canyon Town Station, that connected it with the rest of London. But I, I, I think in terms of a lot of development, we, we do need to accept, however, that it was a blank canvas. And so we needed to... Invent a reality of that place and that that invented reality was the notion of living on the fantasy island Okay, that's a particular Circumstance, but I think a a contrasting project which is very similar, but also very different Which I think is more interesting in response to your question is the regeneration of Brentford Town Centre in West London and what's interesting about Brentford and the sort of the 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 investment in the social construct of a place before any development happened, so what's interesting about Brentford is that Brentford in West London you know that location it's been inhabited for we know for at least a thousand years um uh, plenty of, more than two thousand years there's the stuff going back to Roman times and so forth, all because of the confluence of the River Brent and the River Thames. That's kind of why it's always been a place that's been inhabited. It featured in the uh, in the English Civil War and lots of battles there. Uh, then there were four noted battles, no, three noted battles uh, of um, uh, in Brentford. One of which I think was fifty three A. D. Okay, that's how far it goes back. Sure. But Brentford um, in in latter times, in modern times, became a logistics hub. And because the river met in that location, it was where the rail lines, the Great Western Railway, uh, one of its termination points was in Brentford. So the rail met the River Brent, met the River Thames. It was a logistics hub uh, and was a busy one really up until the Second World War. So no one actually ever lived in Brentford, really lived there in a a real sense. It was sort of the industrial hub. Lots of pubs, Brentford famous for pubs, from beer making because of all the workers who were there. But actually, there was a donut of what was then suburban quality wrapping around uh, Brentford um, in terms of Kew, uh, Chiswick, Isleworth, uh, and so forth. And if you, before we started um, campaigning on Brentford, if you would have spoken to um, anybody who lived in those locales and had suggested to them, would they consider moving to Brentford, they frankly would have laughed at you because they did laugh mm. at us. And so what we did there was we thought that we needed to kind of reimagine the place not change it but reimagine it you know the building was the 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 the, the, the place was inhabited by some interesting heritage buildings from an industrial perspective and so what we did was as leaning on the experience of the whopping project is we decided we needed to create a cultural framework for or a framework for I dare say, small c, cultural activities to take place, right? And so we invested heavily in that, in creating uh, a rolling program of events from food to markets to classic cars um, to, uh, did I say, live music, Um, and actually created an amazing visitor experience. We did this large urban art installation where we, painted a thing called the flood, which rises up three meters, sort of all the ground and the buildings all painted blue to reflect a three meter tidal sort of change in the uh, in the location. And as a consequence, we had thousands and thousands and thousands of people come there to entertain themselves in West London. And so from nothing we turn what was the kind of you must be joking. Why would I bother ever going to Brentford? There's nothing for me in Brentford to Brentford becoming, frankly, the new shortage of West London. And that entirely is a sort of a social cultural construct. And so people's attitudes were just transformed. And so as a consequence of that reimagining of a place without actually physically changing the place, we built, by the way, built a fabulous bakery and a lovely little pocket park. So you'd go there and you'd spend your £3.50 on a ridiculously expensive pastry and another £3.50 on a cup of coffee and sit in this lovely little pocket park. And it was just a divine. You'd go there and you'd spend hours. Um, we completely transformed people's idea of the place as opposed to physically what the place was. And all of a sudden our largest cohort of customers were downsizes from those three, four million pound suburban properties in those lovely affluent leafy locations with people who the kids have left home. They're knocking around in these big houses. They don't want to leave West London, but they want a bit of edge. They want a bit of interest. They want to reinvigorate their lives. Um, And that all is a consequence of this reimagining of this place and getting everyone else to reimagine it. It is truly a paradigm change, right? Without a physical change to the environment, which has completely changed people's attitude. That's like Brick Lane. Why is Brick Lane so amazing, you know, obviously it's it's several millennia old Brick Lane in terms of a place, but actually why is it a, a magnet for so many people these days? When actually if you physically looked at it, took off the rose tinted spectacles, you'd kind of see something that was a bit hmm, not great, right? Um, but actually it's amazing because of the social idea of this place, what people think of the place. And because of they then choose to go there, It is amazing, because it is interesting, because people are there. And so that's what we've done with Brentford. And I think that that sort of stuff ultimately feeds the demand to be in a place. The more people who want to be back in that place, the better the value. The more you can do, the more positive effects it has on the whole sort of urban real estate sort of uh, uh, industry, really.
0: I, I, I'm struck by that and I think particularly that point where you're making that you know, we need people to be, they're not just visitors, they're not consumers, they're participants. You're interested in not just attracting people but involving people.
1: And we we're very specific about this around Bradford. We, mm. we did not focus for one nanosecond on customers. Mm. That's not our thing. What we mm. needed to do is we needed to change globally the perception of this place. Globally. Mm. The customers would take care of themselves. Yeah. Right, and that's what happened. So you know, it's just it's been a transformation of a place. You know, so much of what's not happening in our town centres today, and we talk about our, 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 we talk about our failed high streets and our hollowed out town centres and and so forth. Um, uh, And okay, there's lots of nice ones in London that have proven to be quite successful, but I'd say there's more failed ones than successful ones nationally. And a lot of it ultimately is because these places have become depopulated. People just can't be bothered to go there anymore. And if we focus on the things that draw people together, as a species, just think of ourselves as an animal species, right? We need socialization. We need social contact. We need animation. You know, those of us who don't need that are in a mental asylum, all right? Okay? And if we focused on that first and foremost, I, I think that the real estate ultimately would take care of itself. Yeah. And, and that's where the focus of one's energy needs to be if we want to think about how we make depopulated places populated yeah. again. And I don't want to so, talk about it in terms of failed places because they yeah. are failed economically. But the failure is not an economic problem. The failure ultimately is a social problem
0: so a question on that so you know if I think about then the way the business of, of property is split up you have your development managers who are following their project and they're keeping it on time and on budget and then you have your asset managers who are there to maintain it to keep it steady now so much of what you talk about and your body language and your energy there suggests an impresario it suggests people that have a keen care for what people are doing what's attracting and involving them and it seeks to make it better every day where are those people within the business of property because at the moment well i don't, I don't think see... they're there
1: to be honest i think you know the truth is is that businesses in the main are dominated by a particular cultural footprint and it usually falls into one of those two camps that you've just uh, discussed i think there are some who do it extremely well and have understood that for for quite some time but they're the outliers and they're the ones that we hold up as the great exemplars um mm-hmm. You know, in the commercial office space, I think that the company, um, um uh, Simon Silver, for example, with with Durant London, is a you know, a friend and somebody who I've admired for for decades. Understood this a long time ago, and their idea initially started around around innovative design and so forth. But actually, over time, they've evolved, and even their latest projects, are now started to think about the canvas upon which that social animation can take place and if they get that right then the real estate would take care of itself and i think you know they've learned a lot from for example the um, the t building um and in in Shortage, about how that sort of animation that happens on the ground feeds into you know the success of the thing overall, and and that's fed into the later stuff now on in 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 Blooms in Fitzrovia, for example, where yeah. they've built the you know the members club. You know you can be anybody working in any one of their many office buildings around there. Uh, you could just be the lowly cleaner, and you still get to use the club facilities and so forth. Mm-hmm. And really building a sort of a a sort of a you know an experience around 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 the yeah. estate. And that you know that's now that's now evolving. I think quite quite rapidly you know i'm now working as you know on bringing forward Bishopsgate, goods yard which is not a residential project and you would consider me to be a residential developer but you know that's 1.7 million square feet 1.45 of which million square feet is offices and so we're thinking about next generation offices and and and, and, and what that is and what is it that the tenants of not just tomorrow, but even the tenants of today have recognised mm. that they are are needing in order to stay ahead, not just commercially, but to stay ahead in the sort of highly competitive market of attracting the best talent, yeah, um, as well as winning clients. Um, mm. and, and and you know, the truth is that talent first, client second. Because
0: mm. if you
1: don't have the talent, you ain't got the clients. But if you have got all the talent, the clients will come and find you. Um, And so what does next gen mean? You know, if you're a 50,000 square foot occupier, how do you do that? And so we're, you know, we're looking at a thing which is that, you know, I went to see Google uh, in King's Cross earlier today, kind of an interesting thing. And, you know, we all know, well, we work and so forth. But people are really thinking about the entirety of the workplace experience. But how do you do that when you only have 50,000 square feet of space in a multi-tenancy building? So we're now already, we're already working on the next generation of offices where the commercial argument is being made and hopefully will be won. I haven't won the argument yet, but I'm hopeful that we will win it around the idea that what tenants ultimately want to buy is a great work experience. In parallel to what we have historically been selling, which is great lived experience.
0: Mm. Um,
1: And that they'll take less square footage within their net space, but pay a higher rate On that in order to have the complete wrapper of amazing stuff around them within their existing office building so that they can sort of be in that choreographed cafe lounge restaurant library workout space all of these spaces which now constitute the modern workplace and still be still be doing their work you know it's very interesting that we know well we know well why office rents in certain localities command an extremely high rent. I think, let's talk about Mayfair, for example. You know, and and the reason, one of the reasons why that is not just geography, but also because when people, what attracts people to go work in those workplaces is all the animation around the workplace within that environment, right? An enriched one. So doesn't the same apply um, in places that are, not the triple A locations, which are yeah. the kind of the yeah. next layer and the layer below. Uh, and actually, can we not think about workplace as much more of an experience as opposed to where we just go and produce outputs? Yeah. So, uh, and ultimately, it all comes back to this squidgy bit in the middle. You know, yeah. our species, you know, the soft squidgy bit, human beings in the middle. So just focus mm. on that and the emotive quality around that. Again, you know, the decision to work in one place versus another, is uh, is uh, is uh, is uh, ultimately for many, not everyone, but for many people, uh, an, an emotional. What I was you know learned this morning from the the lovely lady who took us around Google, um, and she'd worked in three centres in Sweden, um, Stockholm, in New York, and and now in London. And we were talking about the calibre of the environment. We were talking about the new Google building, which is being built across the way, which is the next level, the new type of office building. Be over and above what they've got now. And we talked about Amazon. And she could go work at Amazon and she could probably earn 15 or 20% more. And and we talk, and yeah, some people will do that. But actually a lot of people like her said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm interested in the social quality of my environment. I love coming to work. I love being at work. I stay late because I love being here late. Um it's my life. It's my lived experience. So,
0: um, yeah. Well, I, as I look through all my notes, which I've been writing down like a sort of crazy serial killer here, I note that there is this sort of, you know, a seam that runs through it in terms of the question of empathy, social linkages, lived experience, an invented reality that's in tune with a social and cultural construct. And then this last point you talk about, about the canvas of social animation. And so this idea of essentially the experience, not as the overlay, but as the underlay, is coming up again and again in it. It's
1: interesting you describe it as an underlay. Mm. I think that in building terms, we can describe it as the foundation of value. Mm. Value in real estate is built upon, I go back to my earlier point, is about people's want of being in a particular place. So we can create the physical assets upon which go in that place but actually what's the foundation that draws people there in the very first instance so i'd i'd liken it to the foundation that holds up the value um and so if we get that right you know everything else just naturally falls into place and it's very unlike property companies to think think like this because they said they're occupied by lawyers run by lawyers or accountants or builders
0: right
1: yeah and that in the main is The real estate industry, you know it well, Um, but actually it's the other bit, which is the magic. That's the secret sauce. And, you know, success where we see successful locations, I think is essentially an accident. My job is to codify the accident into effective action to help Ballymore and others do extremely well based upon a rationalized plan born out of the human experience. I think you can I think you can you can manufacture these things because we've been learning for since the dawn of man about what works and what doesn't work for us as a species.
0: That's right. And and particularly the idea of setting a stage, as you're saying, the experience as the foundation. And then you're constantly riffing on what's happening around you and using it to learn and create and build from there. And that suggests a dynamism within this brand as place that on the whole, we don't see that often. So I think, you know, what you're talking about there is then there's a back of house team which speaks about the whole ecosystem that then is there to propel and riff off that front of house experience and i think that it feels deeply theatrical the way you're looking because it it is theater
1: you know we have a limited time on this planet and we want to be enriched and entertained and we want to enjoy our 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 life's experience right you know you talked earlier about we talked earlier about brand and real estate and what constitutes brand right and And, you know, is there a brand? You know, can a developer have a brand that would attract an audience and so forth? And I think it's a hard case to prove um, because ultimately real estate is about geography (laughs) as opposed to brand. And just because one brand developer does something on this square foot of land, would it mean that another developer couldn't ultimately do the same thing or do something different and generate an equal or commensurate amount of value i I think that no I think the brand when we think of what brand is you know brand is is the commodity thing in the middle but then it's also that onion wrapping around it there's layers of human experiences plus the physical commodity components of, of the thing but you know what a true consumer product is and the branding of that has a whole set of attributes associated with it you think of say Mercedes-Benz as a as a brand it's not only the sort of the physical output of the cars but it's the kind of the the association with it and one's ex- expectations about what the participation in, in that is all about for good or for or, or for bad um, and and I, I think that as we were speaking about earlier I think a better way to describe brand is more around brand of place And so when we talk about place today, as I was explaining earlier, I think that place place really is entirely a a social construct. It's not a it's not a physical one. Uh, And it's place, which is a better in real estate terms, a better descriptor of brand because the place has the physicality of that immediate environment. But then it has the layers of social and emotional and dare I say some physical contributors that make up the whole experience the brand experience or the place experience in that location so place for me as a as a as a, as a way to describe things is that's brand brand in real estate is place um i don't think that companies in and of themselves really have a brand you know companies are known for for good and for for bad but you know even bad companies can do things that create joy and delight and great companies can do awful things that can repel people so yeah i think place is ultimately brand in real estate
0: I think you're right, and I think when we when we look at this line you're drawing around the social, the emotional, the experience as the foundation, the brand as the constant lived experience that you know grows with each positive experience, and essentially you know each individual is the protagonist within this ever evolving theatrical composition, it makes sense to me I mean it's music to my ears, Roger. Yeah. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. I could talk to you all day. And so thank you so much. And I will put some links in this too to also relate to those other projects because it would be wonderful for people to experience them for themselves too. So thank you.
1: Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast today. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. Thank you and see you soon.